0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, as the war in Europe continues, questions remain on how the U.S. can best support the Ukrainian military and pressure Russia. And the Federal Maritime Commission has a new leader who will tackle disruptions to the... Today on Government Matters, as the war in Europe continues, questions remain on how the U.S. can best support the Ukrainian military and pressure Russia. And the Federal Maritime Commission has a new leader who will tackle disruptions to the supply chain and support the economy by ensuring competitive and reliable international ocean transportation. Government Matters starts right now. DC and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gergis. As the Russian war against Ukraine continues and casualties mount, American policymakers are asking, what should the United States do now? That's the title of an op-ed by Klon Kitchen. He's a senior fellow for foreign and defense policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Klon, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So when trying to predict what comes next in this conflict, which is very difficult, you're looking at three variables. Let's go through each one. The first one is how Russia has chosen to fight this war. What have we learned from that so far?
2: Well, in the uh, initial onslaught, uh, we were all surprised by, um, frankly, their constraint. Uh, They largely targeted uh, military targets, but in the final weeks here we've seen them begin to expand as that initial onslaught failed now they're beginning to do uh, much more non-discriminatory targeting of whole cities uh, s- thousands of, of, of citizens uh, being displaced in, in each city uh, and they have moved on to a much more aggressive um, less surgical approach
1: and so what is the appropriate response then to that
2: well, so what we need to do and what we're continuing to do is to equip Ukrainians, uh, one, to, to provide humanitarian corridors so that those citizens can move out of those cities, but then, two, equipping uh, the Ukrainian military and militias with the capabilities to attack effectively against Russian forces, which they are doing
1: which leads me to the second variable which is Ukrainian lethality and it would seem that the Ukrainian military has been killing a lot of Russian soldiers I mean we can't be sure but estimates are over 6,000 Russians killed how does that change Putin's calculus if at all
2: well it obviously provokes him um, and I don't have any sympathy for him but I think what it does is it causes him and his military leaders to understand that this is not going to be the easy cakewalk they anticipated Uh, It obviously encourages uh, Ukrainian morale uh, and effectiveness. And as we're seeing now, uh, we're seeing that begin to affect Russian tactics. It's causing them to uh, do more standoff attacks. It's causing them to do, as I said, indiscriminate shelling of whole cities. Uh, They're attacking essentially anything within a a certain um, radius instead of doing any type of surgical strike. And that, again, uh, provokes broader Western uh, commitment to supporting uh, the Ukrainian uh, defenses, right? So as as Putin becomes uh, more aggressive and, and more lethal and less discriminating, that causes uh, Western supporters and the Ukrainian military to fight harder and more effectively.
1: The third variable you state is hostility bleed over. Have we just been lucky so far that there doesn't seem to be any bleed over into other countries?
2: Well, I don't know how much of it is luck. I suspect that that a, a large portion of that is a strategic choice by, by Putin and, and, and Moscow. The last thing they want to do is provoke a more aggressive, more effective response uh, from Western nations and particularly from NATO nations. Uh, I think it's still Putin's intention to constrain this conflict to the borders of Ukraine for now, um, because at the point where it begins to bleed out, we now are moving into a much more dangerous, more critical phase uh, of this conflict. Uh, So, yeah, I think right now Putin's desire is to keep it within those borders. However, if he continues to suffer massive losses, if he ultimately concludes that uh, he is not going to be able to realize his military aims in Ukraine, which is a distinct possibility now, there is a rationale where he decides to expand the conflict. I don't think that's a necessary conclusion, but it is possible.
1: So what military support should the US provide Ukraine that it isn't already sending? And the president has just announced an additional 800 million in military support. What do you think?
2: Well, I I think the doubling down on what we've been doing in terms of providing manned portable air defense systems like the the Stinger missiles and uh, anti-tank missiles like Javelins and the such, I think that's exactly right. We need to keep doing that. We're pouring it in. I'm glad to see the, the doubling down by the administration on that. In terms of anything new, honestly, the only thing we're not providing them that would seem to make sense is the military aircraft. I understand all the nuances and difficulties of, of getting that kind of material into country without uh, provoking you know, the perception that NATO is actually actively involved in the conflict. But I think that's a manageable risk, and I think it would be hugely helpful to the Ukrainians. So I would like to see that happening soon.
1: You also recommend electronic warfare capabilities. Spell that out.
2: Well, so the critical capability that we haven't seen come online is uh, Russia's use of non-state cyber actors. We know that they have a host of, of ransomware groups and hacking syndicates that operate within Russia's borders uh, with at least the informal uh, discretion of the Russian government. And at any point uh, that Vladimir Putin were to choose to attack the United States or its allies using cyber mains, um, it's almost assured that these capabilities would be brought to bear. They've already been attacking the United States over the last several years. We've seen a 300 percent increase in ransomware attacks, for example. And so it only makes sense for the United States to even now begin dismantling the kind of infrastructure that allows those types of cyber attacks to occur.
1: Where do you stand, Klon, on the um, no-fly zone that uh, uh, President Zelensky has been asking for over Ukrainian airspace?
2: Well, it makes obvious sense as to why Zelensky and Ukrainians would want a no-fly zone. So I don't begrudge them that, that request. I think it also makes sense uh, why the United States is choosing not to do that. Number one, a no-fly zone is itself an act of war. And it's not like you just declare it and poof, you've got a no, no-fly zone. A no-fly zone would necessarily mean U.S. pilots uh, shooting down Russian pilots at the, mom- at the moment where they violate that that no-fly zone. And that now puts us in a direct shooting war between two nuclear armed states. Uh, and that, I don't think the situation has, has gotten to that point. I also think that by providing air defense systems like we've been talking about, like Stingers and other things, will allow Zelensky uh, to essentially build a, a poor man's no-fly zone. I think that's the strategy right now and I think that's the one that makes
1: sense. All right, well, we'll leave it at that and have to see what, what happens next. Thanks, Klon, so much for being on the program. It's my pleasure. Coming next, the Federal Maritime Commission has a new leader. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the commissioner will work to improve the U.S. supply chain and port congestion. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Port congestion and supply chain issues have impacted everyone. The Federal Maritime Commission was established to regulate the international ocean transportation system. Max Vekic is the new commissioner for the Federal Maritime Commission. He's among five commissioners who the president appoints to lead the independent federal agency. Max, welcome to the program.
3: Great to be here.
1: So what does the Federal Maritime Commission do?
3: The Federal Maritime Commission is made up of uh, five commissioners and... They have oversight, or we have oversight, over the ocean shipping carrier industry. Primarily, uh, it's mostly the international uh, ship companies, uh, maritime companies. Um, We call them carriers. Uh, A lot of people refer to them as shippers. Shippers are actually the people who put stuff into the containers and take it out of the containers. The carriers are the people that carry the product. We, uh, The FMC, Federal Maritime Commission, we are the advocates for the supply chain in total, and we have a role there, and we speak to strengths and weaknesses, as in um, you know, the lack of adequate infrastructure in our country, which we've taken a great turn towards fixing with this Congressional Infrastructure Bill. So we take care of that
1: i do want to ask you about supply chain because that's uh, clearly a very big issue but i want to ask you about your enforcement authorities what kind of authorities do you have for enforcement
3: Uh, we have injunctive power and we have a bank of attorneys and um, um, professional uh, on staff uh, uh, attorneys with the fmc we have enforcement people to ensure that the market remains uh, equal playing field uh, prevents monopolistic behavior, prevents collusion, prevents um, unfair unfair uh, marketing really we're really here uh, watchdogs of the marketplace itself
1: but how does how does the commission specifically help u s exporters?
3: Well, not enough, but we need some help from Congress on that part uh, and that was one of the things that compelled me to seek this job for President biden was the idea that we needed to do more for American exporters. Um, my background, uh, I'm a little bit of an anachronism. Uh, I've been more involved with exports than most people in my industry over the years. And I've exported wood products and containers and uh, bulk uh, bulk grains and, and actually even automobiles to China. So I'm a very much a pro export person. Um, we have taken on a new um, export uh, expert in um, in the agency. They're they're relatively new, and it's uh, getting a more a higher profile uh, uh, spot than in the past, and uh, a more of an emphasis on exports. But frankly, uh, I think a little congressional help there with uh, letting us and letting the FMC do more with exports would be a good thing.
1: Max, part of the commission's mission is to, quote, protect the public from unfair and deceptive practices. Can you briefly tell me what kind of unfair and deceptive practices we're talking about?
3: I suspect um, that um, the public would like us to deal with prices. Commission doesn't really have that power to get involved with pricing. But where companies um, collude and uh or where uh, uh there there's an effort to have monopolistic behavior to the detriment of um, the american public which includes the shippers then the commission has a role to get involved and to take them to court basically and um we recently been also uh, the uh biden administration has uh uh offered the use of the department of justice to help with us uh our enforcement arm and uh to beef up our, our efforts to make sure the market remains level and um uh, you know capitalistic uh, systems tend to have the big uh, the big eat the smalls too much and uh the commission's meant to not let that happen and to keep that from from us becoming can- cannibalistic and um that's that's the goal and uh
1: all right, so, Max, we're going to take a quick uh, pause right here, and then we're going to come back and talk about supply chain and, and congestion. Bring it on. Coming next, we continue speaking with Max Bekic on how he plans to keep the international ocean transportation supply system competitive and reliable for the U.S. economy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. I'm here with Max Vekic. He is the new commissioner for the Federal Maritime Commission. Max, I, I know that this is a big issue, um, which is the supply chain bottlenecks. From your perspective, can you give us just an idea of what's causing that problem?
3: Well, uh, we can blame it on, on a lot. of. There's a lot of villains in this story and there's a lot of causes. But I'd say deferred maintenance, deferred use of, and uh, development of our infrastructure. Infrastructure are the primary reasons why we have this issue uh, today. But uh, consumer demands, great. I mean, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be upset because people are spending money and have money to spend. That's a great thing. And um, I'm a I was a Democrat appointed to this position, and in my past I was a state legislator, and I was always a person who's interested in jobs. And uh, and so uh, the economy is robust. That's great, but. Our infrastructure is not set up to handle this, and um, we could have we could have done this if we'd started uh, 10 or 15 years ago to build more docks, to build more uh, terminals, to build more rail capacity. Um, so, but we didn't do that, so now we're playing catch up.
1: I think that that's the 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 key issue here is is the condition of the ports.
3: The ports are actually getting the cargo moving. You know, that's the untold story. We're more, more cargo is being moved by the ports than ever in the history of our country. And- um,
1: But there's still congestion, Max. Why is that, why is that happening? Why are oh, there ships uh, idling outside of the ports?
3: The, the problem starts, unfortunately, starts way inland. Uh, there's no warehouses capacity. There are not enough truck drivers to get it there. And there's not enough rail capacity. And there's not enough rail cars. And they're in there sometimes in the wrong spot and in on the pacific where i'm a pacific ocean guy and i'm the only one on the commission from the pacific rim um the the preference for uh cargo is moving through la long beach which are the biggest are, are the number one and two ports in the country but uh you know you can only put so much only so much cargo through a port without having problems but um they're making progress there the uh, amount of vessels that are waiting is—they're uh, uh, spending less time waiting than they're getting to the dock now. So we are making progress. It is—it is happening. It's going to take a while, but this problem didn't just happen, and it's going to take a while to work its way through. And uh, up until two months, up until two months ago, I was actively involved with that, moving cargo and making sure we—we uh, we did the best. And, and I can tell you that the workforce on both coasts are, uh, are doing their best to move cargo. The supply chain labor force has is, is, uh, been heroic. And despite COVID, despite all the rest, uh, they've moved cargo and- uh, Well, that's well a you, story do, that's
1: you mentioned hard. the pandemic and obviously that's been very uh, disruptive, but now that that's hopefully getting better, shouldn't supply chain problems also be going away now?
3: well, you've had a couple of years to compound the problem. <clears throat> and so it's going to take some time to, to fix the problem. And, uh, but, but the trends all seem like they're, they're going the right way. And, um, um, but mor- mortality in amongst the workforce was actually even, it was a significant issue on the West coast. And I can't speak to the East coast on this matter, but, uh, you know, I, I lost, uh, workers to COVID, uh, and, uh, there's they kept going to work when when the problem when the supply chain problem hit covid hit they still uh turned to and still went to work so um um you know we have a problem on top of um covid with a, a not enough people wanting to be in the transportation uh industry not enough people wanting to uh use that as a career so workforce uh, recruitment is a is a is a longer term issue but it, it's vital i'm a boomer i mean we're almost gone as far as workers go but we're not seeing um we're not being replaced by these by the newer generations and that that's something that uh, everybody needs to do a better job of recruiting for so that's that's why we have no truck drivers that's why we have fewer uh, dock workers that's why we have fewer warehouse workers and also uh you know i think uh, there. One of the solutions, obviously, is to pay people more money and h- increase wages. And uh, if you want to attract labor, that's normally been the key, money.
1: Well, Max, you were sworn in about a month ago. What are your biggest priorities in the short term and the long term?
3: They're the same. Move cargo. Do what I can to uh, bring my uh, experience and in, uh, in history and uh, apply it to the FMC and where possible, um, um use my knowledge and uh, advice to uh, to keep cargo moving. That's That's the key to the supply chain problem. and uh, we just need to keep moving cargo. And you only move cargo one container at a time and, uh, and just times that by a, a million and you know York, you got our country's supply issue. So we need to keep moving and keep seeing where we're making progress and not trying to reinvent the wheel because that would not be productive. And, uh, uh, but we're, uh, we're getting there, we're making progress, and it's gonna be a while uh, before we see the picture of ships uh, outside some of the harbors uh, uh, <clears throat> be reduced, but, but, they, but the numbers are going down. And um, there are new projects and new programs and new, um, new initiatives uh, like uh, satellite container yards They've they've show, they've shown some uh, success. Uh, Pop up container yards to get the containers out of the out of the harbor area, and um, but uh, the supply chain and in uh, total though needs to. Um, I think uh, it's been a good a good time for a lot of introspection and self examination, and realization that uh, everybody has a role to improve this uh, process. I've seen. Um, the chassis uh, operators, they have uh, done uh, one of the things they did early on in the supply chain crisis was uh, round up all the road, beat up chassis and get and fix them and try to get them on the road and use things we already have. We're making new containers. We're making them in this country where they should be and not in China. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's a smart move, uh, long-term, strategic move. We need to think uh, more long-term and we need to think in total for the whole supply chain and... Um, Do all we can to uh, uh, to have every element addressed.
1: All right. um, Well, Max, thank you so much for being with us, and congratulations on your appointment. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
0: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional uh meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities dedicated network facilities we have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband originally satellite broadband but now manage networks and manage broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and and satellite of course.
1: Well tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service.
0: It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it. Um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government.
1: Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning.
0: We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of uh, understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services, it takes sort of the guesswork out of it